Oops. What's a game library's curator to do? My name's Jonathan, and this is the Snakes Cast, the podcast for people who don't know as much about games as they'd like to know. This week, we're going to come to grips with what it takes to maintain North America's largest public game collection and how to keep it playable. Welcome back to the Snakes Cast. Welcome back, Steve Tassie. Hello again. And this episode's going to be all about you, Steve. All Aww. about uh, what you do curating the game library at Snakes. Let's start from the beginning. Did the position of curator always exist at the cafe, or was it invented at a particular moment? It sort of existed. We've always had, um, I guess, a head librarian. Hmm. Um, back in the early days, it was Sarah Vanderwall. Um, eventually, she left the company, and uh, Colin Young took over the position as sort of head of the library. He was also in charge of the retail division. And um, basically what happened then was that um, it was noticed by by many that um, the job of retail and library management was too large for a single individual to, to really do. Obvious uh, in hindsight, really. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I stepped up. And uh, took over the library side of things, allowing Colin to focus on uh, running the retail uh, end of the company. And then uh, he went on to pursue higher education and is uh, off in Montreal. Hi, Colin, if you're listening. We miss you. Uh, You too, Sarah. Yeah. I have maintained the library ever since. Um, In the early years, I would say that the biggest change that I've noticed anyway is that in the er early years... um, Maintenance of individual games was not as high a priority as it currently is now. How long has it been? Uh, For me as curator, I'm not sure. I would guess in the neighborhood of two, somewhere between two and three years now uh, that I've had the title and the responsibility. And one of the things that's sort of changed since then is uh, is an increased emphasis on maintenance, on keeping... Uh, the most popular games playable and in good shape. Yeah, that is uh, that is a heavy element of my job. Um, I don't actually spend a whole lot of time working on the floor anymore. Uh, I spend most of my hours um, counting Catan pieces, <laughs> um, counting Scrabble pieces. Pick a letter, and I'll tell you exactly how many of that letter should be in a Scrabble set. F. F is two. Very nice. Are there any other major changes that have happened uh, in, in tone in terms of the kinds of work that you've been doing from the beginning to today? Uh, well, I think that uh, we have more focus on is a game suitable for the cafe. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the, in the very, very early days, uh, you know, the, the collection was created by going to thrift shops and going to uh, garage sales and just buying everything that uh, Ben could get his hands on. Uh, but uh, that has changed. There's um, so many games now. There are, yeah, with you know roughly a thousand games getting released at Essen every year, plus the stuff that comes out at Origins or Gen Con, mm-hmm. um, it is impossible to keep up with everything. We don't have the time, we don't have the money, we don't have the space for every single game. As much as I would love to be able to say, yeah, Every game that gets made, we've got one. That's just 
a physical impossibility. So uh, part uh, something else that's changed about your job then has been being more stringent about yeah. the requirements of what new games are admitted. Yeah, and, and that's part of why I go by the title of curator mm-hmm. rather than librarian, uh, because it's not just about uh, organizing the games and knowing where they all are and uh, acquiring new games. It is really more about the decision-making of what games are right for our customers and, and that's that's our mandate these days is is not it's not to have every game it's not to cater to the hardcore gaming enthusiast it is finding the games that are going to uh, entertain our average customer and hopefully turn those people into uh, hobbyist gamers uh, so we're we're kind of like an interactive spiel des Jahr in a way sure. in that uh, we are trying to make people into gamers. Let's go into some more detail about that then. Sure. So how do new games typically arrive in the library? Are they donated? Are they purchased? Are they uh, provided by publishers? Uh, There's a mixture. We do get uh, donations from civilians, but that tends to be older stuff. Uh, You know, they're cleaning out at Margaret's closet and they've found a copy of Clue and a story. And, another copy of Clue. Yeah, so. uh, and that sort of thing. Um, every once in a while, some serious hobbyists will be uh, culling their own collections and so we will get donations. For example, we just recently received uh, a copy of um, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm. uh, which was a game that came out about two years ago. Uh, look quite neat. It's got a Victorian steampunky sort of feel to it. There's uh, a moving board with it gears. Gorgeous. Yeah, um, I was I was interested in it uh, when I saw it at Gen Con two years ago, um, and so it suddenly just was donated to us uh, this past weekend. So that's cool, and I love it when that happens because. Uh, while a game may not be the right game for you at home anymore, it might be a great game for us to have. And so um, allowing games to fulfill their gamey destiny and <laughs> actually get played by people is is awesome. Um, but mostly we, um, we buy games. Uh, now, of course, we retail games, so we have distributors, so we get games at wholesale prices. Also, uh, publishers often have... Um, sort of demo programs where for less money than it would cost for us to buy a game wholesale, we can purchase a game directly from the publisher to be a demo. Uh, it's not a way for us to get cheaper stock to then sell for increased profit. Right. It is a way for us to get games into our library. Uh, some publishers will also just flat out donate games to us, and that's great as well. Uh, that's usually sort of indie publishers who are trying to get the name of their game and their company out there. It also shows some confidence uh, in their product. That is, if you if this if this board game cafe has a copy of our game and people play it, they're going to want to buy. it. Yes, absolutely. We are we are a great marketplace for that. Um, we see approximately a hundred thousand customers a year. Mm. Um, I think like on a record breaking day, we see about 700 people in a single day. Um, and so a lot of people will see your game, uh, if it is in our library and, uh, many publishers get that, um, not all of them do, but a lot of them do. 
So the first step then, the first sort of barrier, I suppose, for a game entering the library would be in a case where it's not provided, mm-hmm. uh, the choice has to be made to purchase it and yeah. open it for the library. How does that process go? What, what makes something a game that you will actually spend money on from the budget to mm. actually open and put in the new arrival shelf? Uh, well, there's two main, uh, well, three main ways that that um, happens. Number one is, uh, is it a game that has been on the guru's radar? If uh, if our staff are talking about a game, there's a, there's, I will definitely look at it. I won't say that, you know, that's a sign that it will actually get open because sometimes it's just everyone's excited about a really awesome game that just is not suitable for our environment. But if our people are excited about it, then I'm going to take a look at it. If we're getting a lot of requests from customers about it, then I will take a look at it. Uh, and also, um, if we have a lot of it in our retail department, uh, then it right. just sort of defaults to, well, the best way to sell yeah. something is by demoing it. So if we've got a dozen of a new game that the retail department decided to buy, then that's pretty much a gimme that that game is going to get open so that our customers can actually see what that game does and decide if it's the right game for them. So once a game makes it to the new arrival shelf, it's going to spend some time there, and eventually a choice is going to have to be made about where its ultimate destiny will lie. Will it go into general populace? Will it be part of the library? Or will it be, uh, I don't want to say condemned. Relegated. uh, Relegated to the archives. Yes, that that is. That that, that deep, dark place beneath (laughs) snakes and lattes where broken dreams of board games (laughs) go to await requests from people who would like to play them. Yeah, so uh, every game will spend anywhere from four weeks to, in some cases, a year on our new arrival shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on the game. Um, some games, we we get them, and we almost immediately know that it's a yes or a no. Right. I mean, there's, uh, there's some games I can see down in the archives that are easier to classify than others. And yeah. There's a lot of them that are just like, why do we even have this? Yeah, there uh, is a lot of that. And they're also, what I'm most curious about are the really borderline games, the ones that are right on the edge, oh. uh, and what ultimately puts them in the place where they end up. What, what, are, the, what, what are the things that make that difference? Well, there are, there are games that, um, there are definitely criteria that we have that we look for. And, um, if we're thinking about two different games and one of them fits these criteria and the other one doesn't fit it as well, then we go with the one that does. Right. So if they're uh, similar, if there's more than one that's, if there's something else in the collection that already does. There's that. Yes. There's, there's similarity. So, um, you know, we have quite a few different Carcassones in the archives, mm-hmm. um, but uh, we also have a few that are part of the library. We have Gold Rush, we have original Carcassonne, and we have um, Star Wars the Star Wars Carcassonne. Those are the three that we have on the wall. Um, but we have, um, I think our Hunters and Gatherers actually wore out and we had to throw it away. But um, we have South Seas. And we have that's uh, probably down there somewhere. Yeah, the discovery, um, the castle. We have a bunch of others that are down there, and for whatever reason, um, either we just deem them not as good as the ones that we've decided to keep on the wall, or they just weren't as popular. People weren't taking them off the library shelves. 
so there's that case. But there are also some very specific things that we look for in a game, and that is, A, does it fit on our tables? Right. There's no point in having a game that you've got to put two or three tables together in order to play, especially if that's a low player count game. Uh, I mean, it, it's just a financial reality. We cannot have two people sitting at a table for six because they want to play a game that takes that much real estate. It's just not sustainable for us. So there's the, the footprint. Um, there's um, play time. Um, the average customer stays about two hours. We, of course, have groups that stay much longer than that. And we have people who you know only stay for a half an hour or so. But the average is about two hours. And so if the play time is higher than two hours, there's a really good chance you're headed to the archives. Um, then there's also complexity. Uh, most people who have been to the cafe are aware of our uh, traffic light color scheme. We have mm. green stickers on the easiest games in their category. We have yellow ones on the moderate level complexity. And then we have the red stickers on the most complicated games in, in that realm. And if we're going to have to put a red sticker on it anyway, that is an indication that unless something else about that game is really great for us, it's probably headed to the archives. Um, the red sticker games are the ones that it has to be a really quiet day for our gurus to be able to take the time to teach those games to a table. So in addition to these romantic choices of which games will live and which will die, <laughs> there must be a lot more unglamorous sort of grunt work involved in maintaining a game library and keeping it playable. What's the most common thing that renders a game unplayable from a maintenance point of view? Missing pieces? Uh, yeah, missing pieces is a big issue. However, it's not really the the most killer thing. Uh, I mean, obviously, a game that has a super important component that just can't be replaced by, uh, you know, a spare like the big pink phone in Dream Phone. Yeah, yeah. You you can't have Dream Phone without that phone. Um, so there are certain games that get rendered absolutely useless without a key component. But for the most part, you're going to find a lot of um, meeples or other random bits in some of our games because we need a substitute piece. It doesn't really matter what it is. It just You just need to know that this is a road or this is a train car or this is a scorekeeping piece uh, and the game still works fine. Um, one of the biggest actual reasons for games uh, getting retired, thrown out, um, is the biological factor. Um, Explain, please. Well, we have, as I said, uh, up to sometimes 700 people a day coming to our cafe, 100,000 a year or more now. Uh, and those people secrete they consume. There are biological elements. There's oh, they're having food and drinks. They're having food and drink. They're also sweating, um, and and other you know just there, there are natural oils that are present yeah. on your hands, even if you have very good hygiene. Yeah. So that gets into the cardboard and the paper of games, and um, we colloquially refer to it as the hand cheese. Um, once a game has the hand cheese, there's nothing to do but kill it with fire. You cannot, you cannot come back from that. There, there is an aroma that happens when you open a box that's got the hand cheese and nobody wants to play with that. Right. 
so, I mean, there are ways that we can mitigate the accumulation of that. Uh, we sleeve cards now uh, on most of the games, assuming we have the right size. Game publishers, please, for the love of everything sacred, standardize your cards. Oh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, sleeving. Uh, we frequently uh, will um, varnish game components uh, to avoid them absorbing spills and, and other uh, things. Uh, and we recently, a few months ago, acquired a laminator. And by golly, I've been laminating the crap out of everything. Um, if it is thin enough to go through the laminator, I will laminate it. Uh, I, I've noticed that rule books tend to fall apart a lot less easily when the pages are laminated. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. this, this is a thing that happens. Yeah, and I wish we'd done it sooner um, because it's great. I mean, I, I often joke that I would like to be able to just sleeve our customers instead of the games. <laughs> you know, give everybody a hazmat suit when they walk in the door. But uh, unfortunately, that's apparently neither practical nor good customer service, okay. I'm told. Okay. Okay. So we, we are now laminating things. So have you got any advice for beginning game curators out there with libraries of their own at new board game cafes? I highly recommend our stickering system. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you don't need to use the exact one that, that we have implemented, but some sort of organizational identifying stickering system for you, whether you want to include stuff like player count and, and you know that sort of thing, optimum number of players, you know, we don't feel the need to do that, but if you think it helps uh, in the recommendation process, go for it. But have some sort of system. Uh, for us, our library is like a battleship grid. Uh, every game belongs at one coordinate point or another. Yeah, and letters across the top, numbers, yeah. numbers down the side. And no, the reverse. Whatever. We do the reverse just because we don't... Uh, we have we have more yeah, we have more than we have columns rows. than we have yeah, rows. letters down the side numbers across the top makes it a piece of cake to find stuff yeah um, that plus our traffic light system we also use blue stickers to indicate that a game is for two people so these are the sorts of things that will help you organize your collection um, other advice um, have lots of spares have lots of duplicate games uh, we have found that there are you know, 20 or 30 games that are so popular that they need to have two or three or four copies in existence. I think we, we have five Scrabbles at each location now. We have uh, three regular Jengas at our Annex location. We have... A bunch of Taboos, a bunch of Pandemics. I think almost maybe eight Jengas at our college location. It's in high demand. Uh, four Guess Who's at each location. Guess who? Interesting piece of advice for this one. Um, the modern guess who is not at all welcomed by our customers. Yeah, they, don't um, they like do it not either. want the one that has different foods and different vehicles and different sea creatures as the faces. The people who want to play guess who want to play with the little old lady in the red hat and the pearl earrings and, and the dude with the goatee and the beret. They want that. It's what they remember. So if you're buying some guess who's, your best bet is thrift shops and buy the classics. They show up pretty regularly. All right, that'll do it for this week. If you've got a question for the curator, hit us with it on the Snakes and Lattes Facebook page or tweet it to Steve at... Real Steve Tassie is my Twitter handle. You can also send your questions to asksnakes at snakesandlattes.com. 
That's our email address for just random questions. Thanks, Steve. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. I love being here. The Snakes cast is produced by P.T. Douglas. Music is provided by Ben Sound. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the people on it and not those of the company behind it. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time. Bye-bye.